You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Hobby Radio. My name is Keith, amateur radio operator W0NX. The following articles are from the July 2022 The Spectrum Monitor, and we'll begin by finishing the remainder of Radio 101 by Ken Reitz, KS4ZR. Streaming international TV and radio with a stick. Setup is easy, as long as you have an Amazon account. If not, you'll have to establish one. Because it's tied to your Amazon account, any apps that you might purchase will be billed directly to your account. Unlike Roku, Amazon is also a content producer, Amazon Prime, for example, which comes with its own set of advantages and disadvantages. Because it's Amazon, it wants to keep track of everything you watch, and the default at setup is to allow all manner of notifications of products and services you may or may not want. While you have to hunt for them, you can easily turn off such offers, but the default is that they are on. For International TV Fair, DWTV, France 24, etc., Fire Stick is very limited. On the radio side, for example, the MyTuner app is $2.99. It's free on Roku, and very limited in stations it can receive. Firestick assumes, since it has your zip code, that you're interested in all of the local radio stations and lists them all. But the reason I have the MyTuner app is to listen to international stations or stations from across the country, not ones I can easily pick up on any radio in the house. The navigation scheme is tiresome, the search feature limited, and I'm not sure why anyone would opt for Firestick over Roku. Last word. Today, many former shortwave listeners live in electronically noisy environments that are not conducive to shortwave listening, and many old favorite shortwave stations have disappeared. The Roku stick represents an entry back into world band listening, bringing solid signals, not dependent on time of day or band conditions, into your living room once more at a fraction of the cost of a Wi-Fi radio. And you also get World TV. And now, Amateur Radio Insights by Kirk Kleinschmidt, NT0Z. NT0Z at StealthAmateur.com Inspiring Old Timers Now that I'm 59.99 years old, on the precipice of becoming an old-timer of sorts, I've started seeing amateur radio through different eyes, from a slightly different perspective, and with a definite touch of irony. I'm starting to build a lot of radio things these days, because I haven't done a lot of home brewing over the past 15 years, and I finally have the workshop of my dreams, so to say, mostly completed. Also, because it's becoming clear that I'm not immortal, and that if I don't do certain things now, not just amateur radio things, I'll have to wait until the next life, when amateur radio probably won't exist, at least not in any form resembling the present. 
shacks and shops can never be fully completed, of course, but mine is over-provisioned and underutilized. Only the actual building part remains. Years ago, when I was doing tons of home construction, I had only a fraction of the test equipment and goodies that I do now. That's part of the irony, I guess. I built radios and amplifiers and accessories and antennas, you name it, with nary a spectrum analyzer or an oscilloscope in sight. How the heck did anything work? How did I survive? I guess we'll never know, because now almost all of the aforementioned goodies are within an arm's length. Sure, I don't have a Hewlett-Packard 8640B calibrated RF signal generator, or its Marconi equivalent, but I do have a couple of signal generators that will get the job done. And, as mentioned, it's now time to just get her done. As my former QST boss Mark, now K1RO, would occasionally remind me, Kleinschmidt, you're great at planning the planning and planning the doing, but now it's time to do the doing. Indeed. When it comes to building stuff, it's easy to focus on the new generation of makers who exhibit extreme levels of creativity and digital ingenuity. Today's makers have revitalized and revolutionized the home construction corner of the internet and amateur radio. There has never been an easier or a better time to build electronic doodads and even learn design skills that were once limited to only a small fraction of degreed engineers. Countless thousands of web pages and YouTube videos display the skills of modern makers, but as necessity is still the mother of invention, let's not forget that makers and scroungers existed in amateur radio long before the internet era, and some of the skills and ingenuity exhibited by hams from earlier eras are truly amazing. This month's column highlights one such maker and pays tribute to another ham, humble, compassionate, and good-natured, who, although he hadn't built any radios since his teenage years, played an important role in building something that actually changed the lives of everyone on the planet, the Manhattan Project. At the venerable age of 101, Robert Levin, AA4EU, one of the last living Manhattan Project senior staffers, became a silent key. I am deeply honored that he gave his amateur radio key, Paddle, to me. Robert Levin, AA4EU. I met Bob about ten years ago, when he was still living in a townhouse, and before he moved into senior congregate living an apartment. Either as a main line or a sideline, I've been fixing computers since the mid-80s. I can't remember exactly how Bob became a customer, but after our first meeting, I knew I wouldn't forget him because he was a fellow ham and because he was 90 going on 60. He liked to tinker endlessly with the software on his personal computer, so my services were required on a regular basis. 
Windows tends to work best with a minimum amount of installed software, so when you install tons and tons of random software, Windows will soon become goofy and require attention. Over a couple years worth of multiple PC service sessions, I had a chance to chat with Bob about his ham radio history and about his broader life story, both of which are fascinating. Bob's wife, Vicki, having put up with some ten household moves in the years since 1942, didn't really like the look of ham radio antennas cluttering up her backyard garden space. Doting as he was, Bob essentially set amateur radio aside for many years to maximize Vicky's happiness in the garden. Since moving to Minnesota some years earlier, Bob and Vicky lived in a townhouse that had the usual HOA restrictions. For years, the only evidence of his former hobby was a Tentec RX-325 shortwave receiver, and the fact that he had steadfastly maintained his amateur radio license during his off-the-air years. After a couple of years in their senior apartment, however, Vicky, Bob's wife of 73 years, passed away and Bob began to consider getting back on the air, which he had first done way back in 1937. He was in his mid-90s, but still quite sharp, and he remembered Morse even though he hadn't touched a paddle since the 1980s. He bought an MFJ memory keyer and a Bencher BY-1 paddle and began practicing and listening to code practice runs from W1AW on the Tentec and a piece of wire. We explored a variety of transmit antenna options and decided to try an indoor magnetic loop. That's not an ideal placement for a mag loop, of course, but Bob wasn't able, for multiple reasons, to move the antenna outside, so our options were quite limited. Bob's woodworking handyman built a beautiful mobile mag loop support box so he could position the loop in the center of the small room that served as his shack, minimizing RF coupling to existing walls and building structures. This turned out to be quite a disappointment. The loop was fine, but all of the surrounding apartments, whether on the same floor or those above and below, were fed with GFCI circuit breakers that would later turn out to be defective. There was an article in QST about a year later describing the details. Even with one watt of RF, Multiple GFCI breakers would trip if Bob transmitted on any band through the loop. We tried all kinds of RF chokes and various configurations to no avail. Unfortunately, this was my first abject failure to achieve success, even limited success, in a stealth environment. Bob sold his then-new IC-718, and bought an RC Forb device to enable the remote operation of a Ham Club HF station. But the experience was too jarring and unfamiliar for him, so he never developed enough facility with the remote system to enjoy making regular contacts. At this point in our friendship, Bob and I knew quite a bit about each other, so it wasn't out of the question that, when he decided to write his biography for the benefit of his clamoring grandchildren, 
he asked me to help him publish a beautiful, full-color, coffee-table book version of what he had written and researched. I was happy to do it, and in the process, I got to hear Bob's amazing life story. Some people, perhaps more people from Bob's greatest generation, seem to find themselves at the crossroads of history, stepping into their own greatness without necessarily knowing how they got there. I'm sure Bob was one of these folks. As a high school senior in the state of Washington, Bob earned call sign W7GHV in 1937. He had a doublet fed with homemade open wire line and a homebrew 20-watt one-tube transmitter that he used to work domestic and DX stations on 40 meters. I never asked him whether the tube was a dual unit or which single tube could put out 20 watts as a crystal oscillator. Being an enterprising young man, in addition to being a self-taught radio amateur, Bob worked as a lifeguard and was an Eagle Scout, of course. His full scholarship to Harvard really set the winds of fate in motion. After getting used to an Ivy League college lifestyle that was nothing like his own, Bob decided to specialize in organic and nuclear chemistry. Nowadays, that doesn't seem all that unusual, but it's important to remember that nuclear chemistry and nuclear physics were still in their relative infancy in the 1930s. Heck, one of Bob's short-term roommates went to England at the start of World War II and became instrumental in perfecting the military radar system that's credited with saving Britain. And two or three of Bob's professors went on to win Nobel Prizes. Almost before the ink was dry on Bob's Harvard diploma, he was working as a chemist for a government-contracted munitions manufacturer, which he did for a year or so until the winds began blowing in earnest. His new job with Union Carbide was interrupted when he was told by management to go to Manhattan, New York, to see a government man about a job that was so secret he couldn't even tell his new wife about it under pain of treason and probable execution. That job, of course, was at the very start of the Manhattan Project. Bob would relocate to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where he would become an important part of the site's massive secret mission to separate and refine uranium into fuel for America's atomic bomb and later energy program. The building Bob worked in was, at the time, the largest building in the world. It quickly grew to house countless uranium separation centrifuges and multiple laboratories. From the outside, Oak Ridge, Tennessee was designed to look like any other small town. But on the inside, thanks to its central location and proximity to the power dams of the Tennessee Valley Authority, the town and the uranium enrichment plants hidden inside it consumed some 20% of all the electrical power in the United States. 
After the war, Bob continued to work for Union Carbide in the developing atomic energy industry in Oak Ridge and Paducah until his retirement in 1983, some 39 years after his first day on the job. He was a tireless champion of developing the nuclear materials safety procedures and regulations that are still in effect today. In the late 70s, Bob became active in amateur radio once again, then signing N4CYX. With a 48-foot Roan Tower, a tri-band beam, and a cooperative sunspot cycle, Bob worked nearly 250 DXCC entities on Morse. Somewhere along the way, he upgraded to extra class, receiving AA4EU in the process. Years later, a move to a Florida condo effectively ended Bob's ham radio career, and the continuing HOA restrictions in Minnesota were just as unforgiving. Had I met Bob a decade earlier, I'm sure we could have gotten him on the air with an invisible townhouse antenna or two. But in the end, much like his life, Bob's amateur radio run was a good one. No, make that a great one. I'm honored to have received Bob's Bencher BY-1 paddle, which will take center stage in the vintage radio half of my shack. That particular paddle definitely doesn't have a storied history. When we were trying to get him on the air from his senior apartment, Bob asked me which paddle he should get, and I suggested the BY-1 because I've used one myself since 1988, and it wasn't insanely expensive, just overly expensive. Even with 101 healthy years under his belt, and despite being on hand for various historic moments, Bob explored only a small fraction of the things that really interested him. I'm trying to take that to heart and apply it to my own remaining years. With a ready smile, a quick wit, and a helping hand, Bob Levin, 1921 to 2022, Eagle Scout, Harvard Man, AA4EU, N4CYX, W7GHV, enriched uranium and enriched many lives, mine included. He is already missed. Dit dit. Fred Kolsch, W0OK. I learned about Fred, W0OK, when I purchased a Heathkit VTVM from Gary G. Hansen, WA0IEF, via a Craigslist ad. You may remember the VTVM, as it appeared in a recent column or two as I prepped it for freshening and calibration. I hesitate to use the word restoration, because the VTVM was essentially in nice shape, making a full restoration unnecessary. Plus, Gary had built it himself back in the day, making it a one-owner unit, and not a butchered and modified basket case, as many are. Nice! When I was digging through a bunch of miscellaneous ham stuff at Gary's place during the sale, I noticed a funky homebrew keer. Homebrewed in about 1970, the keer used plug-in circuit modules and boards and a back plane that contained matching edge connectors. 
in and of itself this is innovative, but the truly amazing thing is that the plug-in cards are made from waxed cardboard milk cartons, and the edge connectors are made from soup cans rescued from the trash. What? Gary handed me the keyer so I could take a closer look. Sure enough, he was telling the truth. I looked the thing over in amazement and asked him who had built this thing of wonder and how it came to be. He explained that his father-in-law, Fred Kolsch, W0OK, formerly 9OK, who became a silent key in 1999, had built the keyer and had given it to him as a gift sometime around 1970. Fred drew the keyer's circuit diagrams onto the wax-coated cardboard PCBs and poked the component leads through to the underside, where they were soldered together with bare copper wire, exactly according to the schematic, much like a poor man's perfboard. To add modularity and flexibility, a backplane complete with edge connectors made from snipped pieces of used tin cans received the plug-in cards, cartons, at the bottom of the enclosure. Now, this may have been a thing back in the day, but if it was, I have never come across anything like it. I immediately wondered whether Gary's father-in-law was a creative genius of limited means. Nope. He was a respected long-term professor of organic chemistry at the nearby University of Minnesota. He could have built the keyer on any substrate, using any method, but he chose to build it from trash, actually, because he could, and because he had a fiercely independent scrounger orientation. He epitomized amateur radio's creativity and well-deserved sense of frugality. He even built the keyer's knobs on his basement lathe. I would have loved to have met W0OK, and I was especially excited to discover that we had a couple of other things in common. Photography and Axeman Surplus. The photography part is self-explanatory, and Axeman Surplus is a St. Paul tradition that predates my time as a ham. Located on West University in St. Paul, Axeman is a venerable electronics and industrial surplus store that contains the usual near-infinite quantity of electronic and industrial doodads, doohickeys, whatchamacallits, assemblies, lenses, hardware, resistors, you name it. Before I became a ham and a builder of electronic things, I was a pre-teen destroyer and disassembler of all things electronic. My dad made the fortunate mistake of taking me there for the first time when I was about 12. It's a solid 100 miles from my hometown, so I couldn't go there myself until I was a teenage ham with a radio license and a driver's license. I would pour through the goodies while my dad's eyes glazed over. It was fantastic. Axeman started out in a respectable neighborhood back in the day, but for at least a 20-year period, West University became a very bad part of town. So bad that it didn't even seem to be in Minnesota. 
so bad that you might be afraid to park your car and actually step out of it. I see that St. Paul's new light rail transit system runs nearby, which probably means that the city displaced the seedier actors in the area, but I can't be sure as it's been several years since I've shopped there. Axeman doesn't carry as much ham-friendly treasure as it did back in the day, but it's interesting that Fred loved the place even more than I did, which is saying something. He would drag weird stuff home from Axeman and acquire discarded scientific equipment from the U, disassemble it, catalog the parts, and then use the parts to build electronic stuff, including the keyer. Glorious. We'll finish the short remainder of this article next time. Thank you for joining us for Hobby Radio. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.